True strength comes from diverse and inclusion. It makes kids better, families better, it makes the game better. We are not done because the work is not done. We have barriers to break and knock down opportunities to give. Those are the words of Willie O'Ree, who in 1958 broke the color barrier as the first black hockey player in the National Hockey League. 60 years later, he was inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame. O'Ree remains an ambassador of the game and a pioneer for equality. His story and his voice, along with the stories and voices of other influential black players, front office members, and fans of the game of hockey, all deserve a platform as we promote diversity and inclusion within the sport. You're listening to Kane's Cast, and this is Amplifying Black Voices. Thank you for tuning in to a special episode of Kane's Cast as we amplify black voices around hockey and with the Carolina Hurricanes. I'm Mike Maniscalco. And I'm Michael Smith. And this was a project that uh, Michael and I had wanted to do for a while, and we have finally gotten the opportunity to present conversations with you with voices from the Carolina Hurricanes, from the front office to arena workers to fans, and hopefully a conversation we can carry on with people throughout the National Hockey League and a conversation that you want to listen to as we feel that this is an important topic, especially as the last year has pointed out, and and I would say years, of how important diversity and inclusion has become, not just in the National Hockey League, but in our world, but to take the moment to amplify voices with the Carolina Hurricanes that you might not know are here and to put a light on their path, how they got here, what it means for them, and the road that they had to take to get here. And our first guest uh, on this special podcast series is Vice President of Guest Relations at PNC Arena, Larry Perkins. Um, If you've been to a Hurricanes game or an event uh, here at the arena, you've probably seen Larry uh, walking around in a suit. He's really well-dressed, and he's been an integral part of uh, really this organization uh, for a number of years. Uh, He's a published author. He's got a a background in in law enforcement, crowd management, Um, and so we get into all of that uh, here in this conversation with him to, to really discuss his path um, uh, to where he is now, um, and his, his background, uh, in North Carolina. And this was a conversation that we had recorded earlier, uh, when we say earlier, actually, uh, late last summer into early fall. So that's where, uh, th- this ball got rolling. And one of the things that we hope that you get out of these episodes of Kane's cast amplifying black voices is it helps you start a conversation and, that's where we get these things moving forward. And sometimes they can be tough conversations to have, but we hope uh, that you will enjoy the conversations that Michael and I will be providing for you. And we are grateful 
to our guests who've joined us to be willing to start the conversation and help moving it forward. So please enjoy our conversation with Vice President of Guest Relations at PNC Arena, Larry Perkins. Michael, it's, a, it's our pleasure to bring on the Vice President of Guest Relations and really so much more at PNC Arena, Mr. Larry Perkins. And uh, Larry, uh, first off, thank you for taking the time and lending your voice, which you have done so graciously over the years for so many people. Uh, but uh, for us and, and issues that we feel kind of feel we should have been doing this sooner. I think everybody is now, but thanks so much for joining us here. Uh, Michael and, uh, and Michael and Mike, I'm, I'm glad to be with you this morning. It's actually a delight to, to be up here and talking with you guys. And, and th- thanks for inviting me. Appreciate right, well, it. Well, let's start at the beginning. Yeah. You know, for you, you grow up in Halifax County. Yeah. And you're growing up, you know, basically in a sharecropper's hut, right? That's the beginning of, of Larry Perkins. Oh, my goodness. Uh, you would have to bring that up, wouldn't you? But, uh, uh, but no, but yes, I, uh, Mike, I, I grew up in humble beginnings, no question about it. I, um, w- my dad was a sharecropper. We lived on a plantation, uh, about 1,400 acres of land. Um, and yes, um, my dad lived in an old slave hut. There were 13 slave huts on this farm. Uh, and we lived in one of them. Uh, we had two rooms, and, of course, we didn't have running water. I had to go up to the plantation owner's house to, uh, to get water and carry it back in these buckets. Uh, so it was a trying time as a, as a child uh, growing up uh, here in the south in Halifax County and specifically Enfield, North Carolina. So I've had that long vowel sound for a long time. How are you guys? <laughs> well, when... And I, I will try to keep this, you know, in, in sports as much sure. as we can. But when did you start to, to like sports or get involved in sports and feel this? Was was that something that you felt it was an escape for you or it was just something you loved to do and, and, and it got you away from carrying the water, so to speak? Mike, I have no talent. I honestly, have no talent. I, I give Let's you. Let's not qu- sell yourself short. Yeah, right? don't, don't sell yourself short right now, Larry. I'll we're only g- we're only two minutes into the interview. Let's wait for the middle of that. Let me give you a story, right? So one year I was um, going into high school, walking from the elementary school into the high school gymnasium, and of course, you know, I was the tallest kid uh, in my class uh, back then. So we walk into the gymnasium. The coach looked at me and said, "Son, come here." And I said, who, me? He said, you. So I walked over to him, and he said, you're going to be my center. And I said, center of what, sir? <laughs> so, <laughs> now look, I was born and raised on a farm. All we played were work games. We did not play basketball, football, hockey, or anything like that. When I got off that bus, I went right to work, if I went to school. I mean, because obviously in, in the South, the kids were – meant to be, you know, um, laborers. That's yeah. what we did. And, and we didn't go to school until, you know, all the crops were done. But, uh, yeah, I, I wish I could say that I, that I played sports <laughs> as a young kid, but unfortunately not. I did not. You are, uh, you're a published author, uh, and your book, uh, Buck 72 sort of tells your story. Um, so, uh, we won't get into the whole thing, but as an abridged version, how did you get from uh, the fields of North Carolina to um, working in uh, uh, sort of arena management um, in New York and New Jersey, and then obviously here in Raleigh? Yeah, uh, thank you for mentioning that, Mike. Appreciate it very much. Yeah, you know, um, my journey, you know, as I said, I was born and raised in. Halifax County, Enfield, North Carolina. My dad 
uh, was a sharecropper, but, but he was also mean, very mean, and I endured a lot of pain and hardship and, and that sort of thing. Um, my dad and mom separated when I was one year old, and I lived with my grandparents first um, until I was nine, and then my mom came home um, and took me to live with my dad. And, and uh, through those years, um, I had received letters from her once in a while and that sort of thing, and I've always said, when I turned 16, I'm coming to find you. Um, th- when I turned 16, I had saved my money secretly, saving my money. Um, and then I decided the day is the day. And I walked to town uh, through the woods and got on a trailway bus um, and then bought a one-way ticket to New York to go find my mother. Um, when I did that, things weren't as pleasant as you, you would think. Uh, I had not seen her in seven years. Uh, she didn't know I was coming. And of course, uh, I'd never used a telephone and uh, I'd go through all that. But needless to say, the following day, I was back, um, I was, went to New Jersey. My cousin picked me up and I ended up back in North Carolina where I finished uh, school. Then I got, you know, I got this drive again. And then I went back to New York, uh, went to New Jersey actually, and and said, I got to make something of my life. And I ended up in John Jay College Criminal Justice, uh, working three jobs at the time and then going to school the night and, uh, and, and trying to figure it all out. Um, and then I became a PI, actually. So I became, uh, you know, uh, got into that law enforcement area and different things and became a, and if you can imagine this, back in the 70s, being an African-American young PI, Man, you couldn't tell me anything. <laughs> but it was rough, though, because yeah. if you think about being an African-American PI back in the 70s, yeah. if, you, if you think about this, one of the things that we had to do in order to infiltrate an organization is that we would have to send agent after agent after agent until somebody got hired because nobody knew who you were or what you were doing. And you can imagine how many interviews and things that I went on and then when I did infiltrate an organization, I got not close to my subjects at all. I got some municipals tasked to be able to do things. And so I had to figure out a way how to, how to do those kind of things. But lucky enough, um, um, I came out of the field. I met this one guy, one of my heroes in life, actually, Lee Morrow. And he took a look at me and said, hey, how would you like to come out of the field and go to work for me? And there's a long story behind that, but I ended up um, some years later at the Meadowland Sports Complex, and the rest is history. Well, I, I, it's funny because now there's so many different things we can ask you based on that information. Yeah, so it's you're like telling a me tree with many branches. Yeah, you're so. telling me that your '70s PI life was not all Richard Roundtree, and for people who don't know that reference, that's Shaft, everybody. So. <laughs> You tell me it's a little bit different than what uh, we would have seen in the movies, right? <laughs> well, almost, uh, yes. So <laughs> let, let me tell you this story. So when I was 14, I, I was telling you about growing up down here uh, in North Carolina, picking cotton. Um, when we finished our my father's sharecropper piece, then we'd go to work for other people. And I was able to raise enough money to lay away my first suit, right? So I go to the store in Itfield and I lay away this suit. And it's not the type of soup that you think about, you know, the, the gray suit, the yeah. black suit. This was burnt orange with stripes on it. <laughs> <laughs> People are going to know Larry Perkins <laughs> is coming. But they knew me. And the store salesman was really good because he said, let me give you a pair of white patent leather shoes to go with that. 
Now you couldn't tell me a thing about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. So 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 Richard Roundtree, I may have started and gave him his style exactly. with that suit that I had with the afro. But it, it's funny because you you talk about you know you know everybody just thinks oh you go to New Jersey you get the job or you go in. It's it's not it, it was and it still is you know a, a fight to get minority voices and faces in, in certain positions. But yeah. when you're knocking, how many doors did you have to knock on just to just to get a, an entry position or, or an interview, even Larry, for what would start your career where you are today? Yeah, Mike, I I can't begin to tell you how difficult of a piece that was for me. Um, and, and a lot of folks, you know, blacks and other minority folks, I think it go through the same thing. Women uh, go through it a, a lot and, uh, and things. But I think you have to persevere. You have to. And I think the hard work, in spite of the beatings and the things that I got from my father, but one of the things it taught me was hard work. And the if you're if you don't have anybody to rely on, you have to rely on yourself. And whatever you get in life, you don't look for, for a handout. You just work hard and you do it. But I had to work twice as hard. Yeah. I had to be, as I was talking about my PI days, um, where with the task and where I was put, I still had to figure out a way to get next to my subject. I still had to produce, even though I didn't have the best positions to be in, which meant I had to befriend uh, different people um, and all of those type of things to be able to get. Now, keep in mind, in order to be a PI, you had to have an informant. You had to have somebody in the banking system. You have to have somebody uh, in DMV. But nowadays, you can do that all on your phone to yeah. track people down. But you have to do all those kind of cultivate all those relationships in order to be able to get what you needed, the information that you needed to uh, track the bad guys down. So, um, yeah, it was, it was very difficult uh, for me um, in those days. But I also think that you have to put yourself in good light. And what I mean by that, that means you have to... Um, look the part. That means you have to do as much work. That means you have to be willing to do things, even if it's less for less yeah. pay. It also means that sometimes you have to give up your personal and God-given rights in order to, to survive, in order to gain equalness, if you will. And you never get equalness, but you get a foot in the door. And I think you have to show that. And I think if you do those kinds of things, it's not selling out, but I think if you do those sort of things, it really gives you a foot in the door. Somebody will see you and somebody will say, you know, that guy's a hardworking guy. He's done that. He's not looking bad. He's not talking, you know, smack. He's not doing all these type of things because now you have to worry about not only yourself, but you have to worry about your family. You can't take sick days off. You can't do all this, these other things because you have to be there and do those types of things. So, yeah, it, it, it was uh, a struggle for sure. When you had the opportunity to come back basically home to North yeah. Carolina, did you did you sort of jump at that opportunity or were there some hesitations there just because of um, the background of, of living with your father? Yeah, and, that, and I, Mike, that's a, that's a great question. Um I, um, I jumped at the opportunity. And yeah. the reason for that was 
And, and, and keep in mind, this is before I wrote the book. Um, and we can talk about why I did that a little bit later, but, um, my dad uh, over the years had softened a little bit and he was actually in a nursing home at this time. Um, and he had suffered a stroke and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, and I think, you know, absence make the heart grow fonder, as they say. Yeah. And when I got a call from uh, Dave Olson to say, hey, uh, you know, um, how would you like to come to Raleigh? Uh, so I took an opportunity to come down and think of this because, you know, um, I was uh, down here two years before he actually passed. But in those two years, we probably spent more quality time together than we did within the, the rest of the time of, of everything. So, yes, so I actually jumped at the opportunity. But, you know, you never think you're going to come back home to do what you love, uh, number one, because I'm thinking sports in the South, and it, you keep in mind, you know my story, how, how good I was at basketball. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, you know, all those kinds of things. But, yeah, I jumped at the opportunity to come back. And, and not just – it's not just a basketball arena. It's a hockey arena like, yes. in the South. And I know that, that yeah. the wheels had to be spinning for you on that. But you, you brought up something about when people see me working hard, doing the right things. How important today, if we bring it to today, is it for a young man, a, a young woman to walk through the doors of PNC Arena and see Larry Perkins and have the position you have, the respect you have. And, and you know, somebody walks in and goes, Okay, he's he's here. That that can I, I want to know more about him. I can get there, and, and I I don't know if you ever think about that, even think about that now, or you're just a guy doing your job. But do you to kind of get that sense of you know my face is out there. More faces like me need to be out there, but it, it's something that does set an example or a goal for someone to strive to. I think about that every day um, when I'm standing on the concourse or I'm out there and I, and somebody told me one time that I shake more hands than anybody not running for office than they've ever seen, (laughs) which is true uh, because I, I pride myself on being congenial. I pride myself on my duties, but I'm also trying to set an example as, as you mentioned. Um, as you know, we don't have a lot of black and African-Americans in hockey. We're getting more. Uh, we've got a nice fan base now of African-Americans where we're going. But I want them to see me. But I also want others to see me. Uh, I want whites to see me on the concourse as well. Here's an African-American man. Um, and I, I, I make sure that I wear a suit every single day because I don't want them t- to see me. or I don't want my skin tone to detract from my professionalism at all. If you, if you if I try to understand what I'm saying, I want to make sure that I put myself in a professional light every single day and, and just doing and good things. So, but yes, I get, and I get these questions with kids all the time. Do you, and I talk about what I'm doing. I they like you say, they see me, but when I talk to them about my story and how that they should go about their um, interviewing and the things that they always ask, what's the best advice you can give me? And I always talk about being genuine, being professional, looking at it as a career and not a job. You, you mentioned that, and it's funny because you keep saying things and it keeps strikes me. I'm like, okay, now I have a, a follow-up to that. There is, it just feels, and I hate to use the word burden, but that's what comes to my mind is you're like, you know, I don't want to wear a suit today. Mm-hmm. But in, in your mind, because of you know the role and, and where you're at, 
I'm not going to give somebody an excuse to say something about Larry Perkins right. or about me in this position right. today. So I, I don't want to use the word burden, but does it kind of feel like that? Because I know we're, we're in the South. There are some days, especially early in the hockey season, late in the hockey season, <laughs> you don't feel like wearing a suit. But is, it, is that kind of, I guess the word is responsibility. Uh, let me answer that in two parts, right? Uh, yes, I think it's a responsibility, number one, uh, to do that. Because uh, because we're still representing the organization. And we want, you know, and I, we got our brand and our name out there, and I don't want anything to detract from our brand and our name, nothing. Um, and that's one piece. The second piece that I do, I also do it for safety, believe it or not. And in terms, and, and what do you mean by that? Well, you know, if I'm not in this building, and I'm, I'm driving in my car, and I get stopped by police. Now, keep in mind, um, I'm, I was in law enforcement. I did that a long time. My background is in criminal justice. And Raleigh PD are great people. I mean, we employ the second highest number of Raleigh PD than anybody here in Raleigh, as you know. But when I'm in my car, they don't know me. People don't know you. So I want to give, again, from a safety standpoint, I want to, when they look at me, I'm in a suit or I'm dressed nicely, I'm clean shaving or whatever, although you're not right now, Mike, but, but, but I'm not. Sorry, <laughs> here's my, my post-season <laughs> post beard, Larry. So. But I, I, I want to make sure when they pull up on me that I'm not making any sudden moves, I'm not reaching into my glove compartment. So it's also a safety issue. But, yes, it's a responsibility issue from, from our standpoint. So you've got a unique perspective on all of this because you do have that law enforcement background uh, and you are black. So when you see the conversations that are happening in this nation right now about policing and police reform, how how do you wrap your mind around all of it? Because you've got a totally unique perspective on it all. Yeah, uh, you know, it it actually saddens me um, to see some of the things that's going on in our nation uh, today, um, and yes, and yeah, yeah, my background um, on the law enforcement side, I feel for a lot of our officers out there because they're doing their job. You know, they're doing what they're sworn to do in a lot of respects. You know, um, yes, you're going to get the one or two people out there, officers that are don't know how to handle their anger, don't know how to handle uh, the being poked. You know, when you poke the bear, you know, you keep poking the bear, something, you know, is going to bite back at you. And I think that that's what happens to, on both sides, you know, on the black side, you get poking them. And then on the law enforcement side, they get being poked as well. Um, I don't like the, what I see in the destruction piece that's out there. Uh, Mike, before we went on the air, we're talking about the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and, you know, you know, the Martin Luther King March in 64, 63 and all of those things. So those were peaceful type things They were not destructive at all. Uh, and there were change. And um, when you see people burning down things and specifically their own neighborhoods, that's 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 wrong. And um, protesting. Fine. I, 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 you know, freedom of speech. Freedom to protest, absolutely. But when you destroy your own neighborhoods and you destroy things, you've gone too far, I believe. I was going to say, and Michael, I think, phrased it perfectly. How do you wrestle with that? Because, you know, everybody wants to paint everything with a broad brush. You know, it's, you know, all, all the police 
are in, you know, in on this or all of the protesters are terrible and they're all in it. And, you know, it's, it just takes, especially in law enforcement, it takes one person to ruin a hundred good names or, you know, 10 years of goodwill right. that's built up. So is there that, that moment where you're like, do you have a thing where I know that people I'm sure along your journey have poked you and, and on purpose to see if they could get you to, to snip at them and, and would know what would happen. So is there a, a count to 10 mechanism? Is it just, you know, turn and walk away? What, I mean, how do you handle those situations? Cause I am, I'm, I'm, I, I don't I haven't asked you this, but I'm 100% sure it's probably happening more than once in, in your job. Oh, absolutely. It's happened more than once. And, and you're right. And people poke you, poke you, poke you uh, until they get the response that they want. Yeah. Either anger or give out or, or they get what they want out of you. Uh, and they just keep poking that. And then as soon as you say something that's out of character, out of norm, and then they call about you yeah. and they say, he said this or said that. Well, they don't tell you about the 25 minutes that you were poking him beforehand. But yes, um, Stephen Covey, I thought, was really good. Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And he talked about that moment between stimulus and response. It's, ver- it's a nanosecond. And I always think about that, about disengaging. Because the next words going to come out of your mouth may be something that you will regret. So I always talk about uh, de-escalating, disengaging, which a lot of law enforcement is looking at that now, the de-escalating tactics. But when you think about when we uh, are stimulus and response, where do we go? And the back of our brain says it doesn't look at what's happening. It just look at what happens in your past? If you think about the formative years between 13 and 19, 20, yeah. those are the years that most of your responses uh, will happen. Those are the things that teach you about life, whether you're going to fight or flight, and, and how do you respond to type things in those formative years. And when we get poked, that's where we go. Those type of things flashes in our mind as to what we, how our response is going to be. So, uh, I look at those type of things, and I think I'm in a unique position because, as you say, I'm in guest relations, uh, different things, and that's what I teach, and I try to teach our staff about those type of things, de-escalating, disengaging, and and those type of things. But it happens every day. It's approaching the issue from uh, an upstream approach, right, as opposed to downstream and, and trying to head off potential problems before they even become problems. Is that is that kind of the, the idea? Yeah, absolutely. So as, as you know, my expertise, it's crowds and human behavior. I've written several books on uh, that subject as well. And the way I approach that, Mike, is if you look at crowds and human behavior, we, we manage crowds, right? And when we go to crowd control, that's sure sign that something wasn't quite right in your crowd management program, that may, which means you didn't plan properly for it. So I always try to stay in that management piece. I always try to stay in that crowd management before getting into crowd control. And that's the same thing about escalating and de-escalating that you're mentioning right. and those type of things. Yeah. Yeah. There's a few other things when we talk about how things are handled, what happens. You handle arena. Yeah. Certainly, these are odd times, yes. uh, more so than ever because of what's going on in the outside world, and that's because we can't have people in the building. So I know that that is something that you're thinking about. But if, if we could have people in the building, and this was normal, 
and what's happening is happening. And the the players that you saw in the NHL did what they did. They they came together. We specifically saw it in, in Edmonton where all four teams came together. When you're watching something like that, is that a you know like a, a yes moment for you, or you're like, uh, you know, <laughs> love our fans want to be here too because you clearly are on both sides of of so many issues that we can ask you questions on. But was that something you're like? These these players have a voice. Let's respect that platform. Where do you where do you fall on things like that? Because your job is is tied to there being people here. Absolutely, I I, I fall on respect, and I think that that's what you have to respond uh, res, fall on, no matter what it is. You know, uh, I respect you and your rights. Please respect me and my rights, uh, and those sort of things. So they have a right to do that, um, as we and I, you and I have a right to as well um putting on the arena management hat <laughs> right yeah. for a second uh yeah so so you still worry about you know what what yeah. it is the the backlash because there's backlash on everything that you do right or wrong there's there's backlash on on the on on what it is so we so our players taking the knee or something uh we have to respond to yeah. that because you know the, the like i say there's the people going to have good things to say about it and bad things to say about yeah. it. And we got to be respond to do that. And, and again, what is the right thing? What is the right thing to do? And what, what was, why were they protesting or why did they take a knee? It's, is that sort of thing? Is it symbolism? Is it community? Is it coming together and fostering a more, a brotherly love, if you will? Um, or is it anger? And, and, and I think it's the latter, you know, that is more about brotherly love and coming together. Because I always talk about um, us, you know, being the Carolina Hurricanes. You know, we're part of this community. We're not separate from the community. And I think that, and the things that you see and the things that we do all the time is really focused on community and bringing people together. You talk about, um, you know, wearing a suit when you're in a car. Uh, anytime really um what other ways you know because we heard from jacob slavin um uh, talk about how his eyes have sort of been open to a world that that he didn't really recognize before he adopted emerson his daughter um what other ways have you experienced racism that that we might not be aware of that we you know that we take certain things for granted what what ways have you experienced uh, that we might not be aware of? Great question. And uh, I, let me just go back and, and, and to infield, for instance, when I was a kid growing up, um, we couldn't walk on the same side of the street. And, you know, we had to walk on the other side. And this is obviously when I was young. Uh, we couldn't look a white person in the eye. We have to look down. Uh, we couldn't go into the same side they, are, they were. Uh, they had to be served first. Uh, all of these type of things is, I, I've experienced in my lifetime. Uh, colors had to drink uh, out of one side of the fountain. Whites had to sit up on this, another. When I went to find my mother, uh, I had to sit in the back of the bus. I couldn't sit up in the front of the bus. When I drive, there are certain towns um, that I will not stop at. If you're on 95, Lynchburg, for instance, and not badgering Lynchburg, but... They were known for pulling African-Americans over and taking them off the beaten path and never be seen again. 
So in the black community, especially the churches, all these stories get passed down. They're like, don't stop here. Don't stop there. So you know all, all, all these type of things. And, you know, and I'll tell you a, a, a sad little story, and, and that is, and even in my neighborhood today, this, is a cut, this happened to me a couple months ago. I was out cutting the grass, and um, I'm picking up the chippings that were there, you know, just getting up the glass chipping. And this little young girl, I guess she might have been three years old, riding her tricycle and pedaling it. And she looked up and saw me and started crying. And she jumped off the bike and ran to her father. And she said, I'm scared. So I thought, well, maybe this guy is going to, you know, say, no, no, honey, not, not, don't be scared, anything like that. What he said was, I know. And he picked her up and picked the tricycle up and they walked by. So, and I'm thinking, what, you know, why, why? Even, you know, you talk about, even today, um, in elevators, for instance, if you get in an elevator and there's a Caucasian woman, you, you automatically speak and you automatically start talking to say, I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to hurt you. Yeah, I'm black, but I'm not going to do anything. But you can all automatically see them clutching their purses or if they get out their car, they automatically double make sure that the lock is locked. Or when you walk by, they want to lock it real quick to get inside. So those are the those subliminal pieces that are still prevalent today um, that a lot of African-Americans go through. You brought up the one thing, and again, it goes into, I'd never even think about being pulled over and like, well, I haven't shaved in you know five or six days. Mm-hmm. Are they going to judge me differently than if I was clean shaven mm-hmm. in a suit? I, that, when you said that, that is, I hate to say a light bulb, but it's one of those things I'm like, my goodness, that's right. Because if, you know, you're you're dressed like, sorry, Michael Smith, I'll well, point fair. to you today. It's totally fair. Uh, but, um, you know, you're, you're going to be you're going to be treated differently on a stop than than we are just because of it. And is there with all of the people you've talked to, with all of the things that you've you have climbed the ladder to, is there something that you're looking at and you say that you've seen change, even if it's an iceberg? Have you seen some change or you're like, we still have a long way to go to, to move this thing up the river? No question. Uh, I've seen a lot of change uh, in my lifetime. Absolutely. Uh, good, positive change uh, for sure. Um, I, I don't think uh, a lot of us would be where we are today if it wasn't for change. You know, uh, different things that, that go on. Absolutely. And and when people say that African-Americans don't love this country, think again. We do. Absolutely. Um, we absolutely love this country. We fight for this country. Um, we're, we're proud of it and, and speak highly of it. When we go to other places, where are you from? We're from America. Um, that sort of thing. Yep. Do we have a ways to go? Ab- absolutely. And I think, it, you know, and frankly, um, today is probably a more scarier period than I've seen in a long, long time, since the riots of 1968 and, and different things when Martin Luther King was killed. But, but what I see today is just as scary, if not scarier, uh, than, than then. Because we didn't see the, we saw protests, but we didn't see the hate. Yeah. So what I see today is the hate that's, that's prevalent than, than anything else. And 
that's 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 wrong as well. The conversations that are being had now, um, I, I think, you know, spawned by uh, the death of of George Floyd, the the, the killing of George Floyd. Um, how important are these conversations, and 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 is there a light, you know, on the other side of the tunnel? Um, that's evident, you know, through these conversations, through, you know, driving through the hate and the violence and the destruction, is there, um, is there, you know, change to be had and, and how do we get to that point? Excellent. I think what we're doing right now, and that is having a conversation. And I, and I say that all the time, uh, my neighbors and I have had, uh, two or three zoom calls was, we're having more because they asked me the same question. What can we do? And I'd say exactly this. Have a conversation. Have a dialogue. Get to know one another. Because all too often we don't know each other. If you know me, you know my character. And I think that that's what happens when you get and start sitting down. Because what my whole thing is looking at a person's character. Because character is silent, right? It's the things that you do the people that you associate with, and all the things that speak who you are. Your character comes out. And the more that you can sit down and have a dialogue, the better. Our churches at one point was great for having dialogue, and that's where you went, to have conversation, to have a dialogue. You know, and I think we need to get back to that, is having dialogue. But, Mike, I think the more that you can get people like today and like what we're doing here is to have a conversation to see one another and not just say, well, they're on the other side. And you hear these stories all the time where, you know, they, well, this person hated that person, this person hated that person until they were in this mix and they go, you know what? You have the same ideals. You have the same wants and needs as I do, but have a dialogue. That's the only way that you can get um, through that. Yeah, social media is a great thing. And also, on the other side of the coin, it can be, uh, as I like to say, it can be a cesspool because you can be anonymous and people can say that. What about ism? I think that's a term now that we can use. You see it on social media. But if it, it, like what you're saying, if this can drive conversations, not a tweet, not something back and forth, but where we can sit down and, and have dialogue, is that something where you're like, okay, it, nothing is worth it. And some of the things that we've seen are worth starting this, but if we can get real conversations instead of just somebody posting something and they do it for two days and then they forget about it, is that where the real, as you say, the real change can come about? Because we're sitting in front of each other talking and, you know, you know, having some laughs and then thinking about, man, I, that happens. Is that what you want to see? And, and how do you view social media in, in all of this? Can it, can it be a useful tool or do you see it more of a device where people are, are just can throw a rock and then then run the other way. I think that you should have dialogue. The more that you can have in-person dialogue, the better, because I think you can get a, a real sense of that person's character, as I mentioned before, by seeing you looking them in their eyes and talking to them and, and getting a feel for who they are. Um, do I, about social media, it could be a good tool. It could be a bad tool. There's no question about that. For those who want to hide behind social media, it's a great tool for them because they're, they're cowards. Yeah. They hide behind it and, and that sort of thing. The people who wanted to use it for good things, absolutely. They come out and have these dialogues. In other words, they find a way to make it work. Look at our teachers who are doing a great job. 
with the kids and, and doing very good things with, with uh, technology and social media and trying to interact with them. So that's a good thing. But those who want to uh, spew hate and other things, yep, they can stay behind their, the platform. You don't know who they are, and, 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 that's, and that's fine. But I think the more dialogue that we can have like this, face-to-face or whatever, absolutely. And these are conversations that, that kind of need to be yeah. had face-to-face, right? Because it's, um, it's too nuanced to, to just uh, have conversations 280 characters at a time. It, it really gets you nowhere. And when you have these face-to-face conversations like we're having, you're learning more about one another, right? And that's really what it, what it gets to is, is the heart of, of everybody. Yeah, it's it's learning more about one another, right? Um, and more the social because you're not you're not in a in a boardroom. You're not doing different things. We're just sitting and having a conversation. And I think that that's you know when I go to these conferences and different things, and you, you hear the speakers and you do their various things, but then the people always talk about the breakout sessions, right? Because the breakout session is when you have honest dialogue. You can dissect it. You can go through it. You can see what the issues are. And I think that that's where the real learning happens in those sessions, just like now. This is, we're having a conversation. This is where the real connection begins. This is where it is when in conversations like this. And conversations, too, are being had internally here at PNC Arena and with the Carolina Hurricanes, too, right, in these last few months. Um Obviously, we'd, we'd all love to have hockey and events, but it has given us a chance to step back and, and reevaluate some things, right? Absolutely. Our president, Don Waddell, uh, convened uh, several meetings on this topic and looking to go further on it. And I applaud him uh, for doing that because and he's, he's been the, one of the first ones up front and talking about let's get together. And, and like he was saying, you know, and, and like you're saying, unless you're talking, because he admittedly he says, I don't know. Is it okay to call a person black or do you want to call them African-American? And how do you feel on the statues and uh, being torn down? And how do you feel about these? Because he doesn't know. And uh, so we had the, uh, a great conversation. It just went on for hours, seemingly, that, um, about those type of things. But our organization um, has been in the forefront of a lot of this t- things and, um, and, and, you know, not bragging, but um, we, we're leading uh, the in, entire NHL and minorities, if you will, uh, which is a, a good thing. It's a good thing for us, and, um, and I'm, I'm very proud of that. Let's now, do we need more? Absolutely. Right, right. That's a one step in a, in a longer yes. process, for sure. Well, I was going to say, I'm, I'm glad you brought the conversation there because you have the title vice president. Right. You know, that Larry Perkins, vice president of... Yeah. There's not a lot of that when we talk and look at sports, um, be it arena management, certainly in the front offices of, and we can go all of the sports, you know, not just the NHL, but all of them. What if somebody came to you and said, Larry, how do I, how do I get here? What are the things that a minority can do, a person of color can do? What are the avenues we can go down to, to get a little bit more in, in this front office? Because clearly we certainly know you can look at some sports. You can't tell me that there's not somebody who's equipped to be a general manager who's sitting out there who's not because of the way they look, not because of uh, anything else. If you set the resumes down and didn't know, you'd be like, well, that's an ultimate hire. What, what can be done to get more people, more minorities, more people of color in these positions? And is it as, as simple as getting the interview process, or is it, there much more than that? 
it's much more than that. It it's um, Mike. It it is. In the old old adage goes, it's who you know. Yeah, and that's still true today, uh, as it was back back in the day. But I think one of the things that I would do, tell folks, African Americans specifically, is to do whatever it takes to get to get into the industry. Whether that's, you know, sweeping floors, whether that's being an usher, whether that's being a mechanic, whether that's being whatever it, it may be, ticket sales, whatever that process is, and they befriend somebody. Um, because you need to have friends to be able to put a good word in for you, to put a, a nice word on your resume uh, that you can do a, a recommendation. Yeah. And, that, and, and again, Mike, that doesn't just go back for African Americans. Yeah. That's for anybody. You know, uh, it is, uh, you know, being befriending people who can put in a good word for you. Now, just because they can put in a good word for you, you still have to prove yourself. You still have to have the skill sets. You still have to have the credentials to get in there, and you have to be able to do the job. Because I've often said, I'm not going to recommend anybody for a job unless I know 100% that they can do that job because I don't want them to make me look bad. Yeah. You know, uh, and that sort of thing. So, yeah. you got, so you got to make sure that you're that you're putting the right uh, people. And that's and that's how I do it. But I, and then going back to, I mean, obviously, we work with a lot of universities, NC State, yeah. Elon, uh, Carolina, all of them all the time. And we always get these students and asking these questions, where do I start? How do I get into the field? And I always tell them, start in a smaller venue, do whatever it takes, we, even if volunteering at high school events. Do because when you start in a smaller venue, you get that experience much faster than you would at a big venue because you have to sweep the floor, you have to set the lighting, you have to put out catering, you have to sell the tickets, you got to do the marketing, you got to do all those type of things uh, to be able, and then you become proficient at them. Now you can have those type of things on your resume. Now you can come to the big boys and say, here I am. When you sat down to write your book, Buck 72, uh, your memoir, um, one, what was that process like? Because I, you know, as a writer, I can't even wrap my head around trying to write a book and, and finishing it and everything. I've got, you know, started but never finished. And two, what did you hope to accomplish in telling your story? Mike, uh, I, I can tell you that I never thought that I would release it, Right. So I actually started, you know, I started the book actually on the 50-yard line at Giant Stadium. As you know, I was vice president of the Meadowlands Sports Complex for 24 years. So I thought, you know, by then I had had a pretty successful career. You know, I'd been a PI, had, you know, met seven presidents in my lifetime, met the Pope. So I'm going to tell about my career. So I started writing, um, and like I said, set the scene on the 50-yard line of Giant Stadium. And I got about 20 pages into the book or so, and I'd realized that I didn't know who I was. It was just plain. I, it hit me like a brick. Like, who am I? And then I said, oh, my goodness. So I couldn't answer that question as to who I was. Um, as I later on, I learned that I had spent my life running away from myself, not really, really uh, willing to look into my past and all the things that happened. I so saw I was so busy doing all that kind of stuff. But so then, I, as I say, I got about 20 pages into it. Then I said, well, I need to find out who I am. And then I started reading books about how to write because I wrote technical books 
you know, crowd behavior books and that kind of stuff. But writing a memoir and writing prose is different than technical manual because one you have to tell and the other one you have to show uh, through emotions and that sort of thing. So I read these books uh, about a year and then I said, okay, let me just go through this process. So then I decided, one of the books said, commit to writing 500 words a night. And that's what I did. So even working, when I got home, I would start writing 500 words. That was my goal, sitting at my kitchen table writing 500 words. And Mike, I can tell you that as I sat there, some nights I would cry. And because you, as you write, you discover things that were hidden. And you go, oh, God, that's why this happened. This is why that was. This is why I do that. That's how this happened. Because writing takes on a life of its own, as you know, if you tried this, it does. And then some nights I would sit there, you know, let's say I forget, start writing at 12 o'clock at night. And some days I would get up, or I'll look up, and the sun is coming through the windows at 6 or 7 o'clock in the morning because I sat there writing all night. And then and some nights I was afraid to go back and write again <laughs> because you never know what you're going to discover. Mm-hmm. So... But it took me 11 years to write Buck 72. As I said, I wasn't sure if, if I was going to release it or not, but I know that it took me 11 years, not necessarily to write, but 11 years to heal. And it, it really opened up my eyes. It really took a burden off my shoulder, if you will, uh, to write. I mean, obviously, as I talked about before, uh, how abusive my dad was and my mom and dad separated when I was one and that she left us to go find her dreams and live with my grandparents and aunts and uncles and all that come flooding out. And, um, uh, I needed to heal from that. There, there are so many offshoots right now to go through and, and just going back, you grew up and lived through the Jim Crow South. I yeah. mean, that's, that's a fact. How much did those things, when you're writing or when you were talking to me and, and Michael right now, like, is that still in the back of your mind, how things were? Or have, you know, you've moved past it, but how much of, of that and things that you were around in your environment, like you said, those formative years, 13 to 19, yeah. is, how much of that developed what you are? Or you're like, no, that was barbaric, archaic. I'm That stays there. That's not what I am today. Or... Is that part of, of what you are today? It's still a part of where I am today. Um, you can forgive. Uh, you can never forget. Uh, it's there. Um, do you dwell on it? No. Um, does it add to your character? I think it does. Um, in spite of your upbringings, I think that you have a choice, Mike. I think you have a choice of the path that you choose um, you can choose the right path or you can choose the left path. Um, they both have bumps in them. It, it, none that is clear. They both circle back on you sometime. But if you could keep going to that right path in spite of it all, I think then you're, then you're moving forward. It's always there. Um, I don't dwell on it. Um, it doesn't come to mind on a, on a lot of sense. Other than, as I was mentioning earlier, when you drive or you're going through certain areas, yeah. you always cognitive of that. Um, and I was telling you guys before we came on the air about um, where I grew up on the farm. Well, 
in, in the book, I think I might describe that there's a hanging tree still there today. To this day, when I go back to visit the farm that I grew up on with my father, that tree, and we used to, excuse me, with that tree, we used to play around that tree. That was called the grove. And you can still see the metal hook that the Ku Klux Klan used to hang African-Americans on, on that very tree. It's still there today. So it's still, so it's still back in my subconscious. I don't think I could ever erase it as, as there. Uh, but it's nothing that I, I put forward today. What gives you hope uh, about the future? Um, and just in terms of, of what you're seeing now, uh, what gives you hope that there is a, a better future ahead? Um, I think my, my past has given me hope. I think that what I look at today, um, how far we've come and how far we still go, it's almost like the stock market. It goes up and then it dips and then it goes up again. But the thing is, it keeps going up over time. And I think that that's, that's what gives me hope. Yeah, we're in a, we're in a bad place right now, but, it, but I still have hope. And I, 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 talk, I talk to my sons all the time about uh, that. My, my young son is in uh, Howard University Law School. He's in his second year um, at Howard, uh, oh, the third year. Goodness, my time. Time flies. <laughs> time doesn't really exist <laughs> right. anymore. Time, right now, from about March to right now, time does not exist anymore, Larry. But I, we talk about how, how long does change really take place, as we were talking about earlier. Change take place over 100 years. So what we're looking at today won't happen. The real change of today won't happen for 100 years. And you have to look at that, you know, from when we were in slavery. And then that took 250 years. And then out of slavery. And then the March on Washington in 68, way 100 years from 1868 to 1968. So you're looking at all that kind of stuff, and then 50 years hence, since then, we're still marching, but we're still making progress. So I have a lot of hope. Because you have sons, uh, and they grew up in a different time yeah. than what you did, how proud are you to see that they forged paths, doors because of what you endured, people like you, your friends that they endured, doors that would have never even, you couldn't get your foot near the door, you could at least put your foot through the door and see what happens. How... Mm -hmm. You get to see that generational. How does that make you feel? And, and is there a sense of pride or a sense of, of you know, accomplishment that they have a chance to, to move further down the road because of what's happened, like you said, because of your past? A great question, Mike. Appreciate it very much. Uh, I'm, I'm extremely proud. I'm extremely proud of what I was able to do and able to show them. Uh, as you said, I, you know, I had to pay for my own college. I had to work three jobs. Uh, my kids, I was lucky enough to be able to afford to send my kids to school without having to have uh, to pay a bill afterwards. Now, my son in, in law school, he's, that's, a, that's his guy. But, <laughs> but, but I, I was very, very proud to um, give them a good upbringing, uh, a good home, uh, and, and various things. And, and also, um, Mike asked me about the book. I also wanted to leave something behind uh, for my children and my family that I may not have been able to tell them or show them, but by documenting it and they can read it, we'll say, oh my God, this is what dad did. This is the struggles he went through 
to make my life better. And and I think that's one of the good pieces by by doing that. But I'm extremely proud. Well, there's there's something you told that story, and I'm going to be honest about the little girl in your neighborhood, and that's heartbreaking. Yeah. Uh, there's no way around it. But you are really an advocate for young people, especially young people that uh, society might say is, is left on the side of the road for uh, foster care kids and, and kids who are for adoption. You are uh, the president and the CEO of Foster a Voice. How important when we talk about change that it starts with young people? And I mean, we're not talking like in their 20s. You, you're formulating your opinions right. by then. But by then, giving people know especially a foster kid a chance just a chance I, I don't even want to go any further than that how important is that to you and for people if you're going to be a foster parent this isn't a, a cash grab you have a responsibility to make sure that these children are being taught the right things and, and they have a chance so they can move on oh my absolutely great question and thank you uh for mentioning that foster kids are, are near and dear to my heart as all kids are um because I understand their struggle. I understand that, it, that they, they're not having a home. I understand from going from parent to parent or uncle to uncle because I was raised that way until I went to live with my dad. But this is what these kids go through. They might see 16 different homes. They might uh, unpack their bags but not their heart because they always have these ready kits to go. But being a foster kid is tough. Um, you know, I, I sat on the board of Wake Tech uh, fo- uh, uh, Fostering Brighter Futures. And, and some of these kids that we interviewed were talking about how far they live from campus. Now, think about this. So they would have to take a bus because they couldn't get a driver's license or they couldn't get insurance at the times because if they were living with a foster family, they weren't allowed to get insurance or have a driver's license. So they would have to take a bus. Now, when you go into community college, you don't live on campus. So which means they have to go back and forth every single day. And again, if they're sick, whatever it is, they still have to go to school. No, they have to get their transportation. They have to pay their bills. They have to do all these other things. So I understand what some of these foster kids are going through. And I've been committed to doing, um, looking at foster kids and different things in my hometown of Enfield, North Carolina, um, I, I went there uh, one year and uh, participated in the Lions Club because I always try to do this. And um, we decided to take these kids to the, the beach, you know, and um, we put a bus of 50 kids in the bus, took them to the beach, and all the kids got off the bus and ran to the ocean in their clothes. They had never seen a beach before, you know, and that kind of stuff. So they don't realize these type of things. Uh, our kids uh, and kids that you know that live in a normal household, they go on vacations. They they can see different things. They go these type of things, and these kids come back to school and say, "Look where I went!" And they're showing them photos. And this foster kids sitting there had never gone on vacation, doesn't have photos to show or anything of that nature. And then they might go from school to school. And so, and and then being so far behind because if they come into a school year where the curriculum is already half over, they spend their time catching up or never catch up. So it's important that um, we pay attention. Yep. Uh, we do things for these uh, foster kids. Best piece of advice you were ever given? Wow, <laughs> <laughs> on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a tough one. 
I don't know if it's the advice or the the unspoken pieces that I see. Um, for instance, one of my heroes is my grandfather. And my grandfather was born in 1883. So now his mother uh, and were born into slavery. But what makes my grandfather so unique for me is not what he said because he didn't talk to me. <laughs> it was that in Enfield, he uh, uh, acquired 150 acres of land. Now, if you think about when he did that back in the 30s or 40s, how did he sell his crops when he weren't allowed to go into Darius' things? And then he could read and write. Now, keep in mind, during slavery, we weren't allowed to read and write, yeah. which is still to this day why a lot of people are still so far behind because we didn't have those, those type of things. But my grandfather was able to read and write, got all this land, do management and different things. So I would sit there as a kid and just watch him negotiate and do various things uh, of that nature. So that was speaking to his character and his fortitude and perseverance. And I think that I learned uh, that from him for sure. So, and then and one other piece, and that is my, um, one of my other heroes, Lee Marold, as I talked about when I went into headquarters and Lee took a look at me. Now Lee was a young 38, just retired E8 of the military, has spent 20 years in, and sharp, well-dressed, the whole nine yards. Again, he looked at me. He saw something I didn't see in myself. He convinced me to come out of the field, meaning come out of the protective, the investigative side and come into security side. He said, but now you have to take this test. You have to go to New York uh, and, and learn industrial security. You have to learn hardening. You have to learn wattage and design and blueprints and, you know, design security systems and all that kind of stuff. I said, okay. So for a year, we would ride together, and he would give me these books, and I would read and read and read, and he'd quiz me uh, for a whole year of doing that. Now, that's a true mentor yeah. for you. And I didn't realize at the time, because I was so young, as to what he was doing. I didn't realize that he had taken me out of his wing and, and was going and culture me and doing various things. So um, it wasn't what he said, but it's what he did. And, and, and the other piece was, I, I laugh about this because Lee being an army guy, he would be up before day, right? And I remember this one time I was trying to beat him to this installation, which was upstate New York. And so I said, okay, I'm going to beat him up there this, this morning. And he said, okay, we're going to meet up there at 04 Dark 100 or whatever it might be. <laughs> so I'm sweating. I'm, I'm barely down the road trying to get up to the, the, uh, upstate New York. And when I get there, I see him walking. <laughs> he had already been there. <laughs> it, was like, it was ridiculous. So then I said, um, all right. So he had already been there, right, now meeting him. I said, um, uh, how about let's go for breakfast? He said, no, thanks. I've already eaten. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Before 4 a.m. Absolutely. <laughs> we got more done before 4 a.m. than we're going to do the rest of the day. No, but I think, you know, it is those people yeah. that are heroes of mine. Yeah. And, uh, and then, honestly, I think one of my passions and one of my drives in life now 
is to pay it forward and paying back. Because again, I didn't know that that's what he was doing and I never got an opportunity to thank him. So paying it forward, and maybe this is a way to put a bow on everything. What's your best piece of advice to uh, this next generation, whether it's in, um, uh, you know, your background or as it just relates to broader race relations? What what is your best piece of advice you can offer uh, this next generation? Be humble. Number one, I think is the, the biggest thing. Be willing to learn uh, would be in the piece of advice. And look at um, jobs specifically as a career and not a job. Because I think that the moment you start looking at it as a job and it just becomes that, right? And you're only going to put in your normal time. But if you look at it as a career and no matter what your salary is, if you make a commitment, stick to that commitment. And I think that that would be my advice to young folks is make a commitment, stick to it, be humble, uh, approach it as a career and not a job. I love that because I think so many people just view this as, oh, this is a job yeah. or, you know, why is that happening? Why is this happening? Um, and I know that that question is being asked an awful lot mm -hmm. today. Why is this happening? What's happening? How can we change it? And uh, Larry, um, Michael and I were talking about it and it, this is something for us long overdue. And uh, you, we can't thank you enough for you taking time out of your, your busy schedule, even though we know, we want, to, we want it to be busier with people in the arena, but you, you took the time and uh, to have this conversation with us. Uh, hopefully, uh, again, if this gets 10 people to want to have a conversation, uh, that'd be great. If it gets one person to want to have that, um, that's great. But we're grateful you're the one person who wanted to have this conversation with us. Thanks so much for everything, Larry. Thanks, for guys, for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Our thanks to Larry Perkins for what I thought was a very illuminating conversation. Um, I, we could have kept that going with him for, for quite a while, oh, Absolutely, uh, but we didn't want to keep him uh, too long. Um, one of the most interesting parts of our conversation was, you know, when we got to talking about, uh, just the way Larry dresses, because, um, again, if, if you've been around the arena during an event, during a hurricanes game, uh, you've probably noticed just how well-dressed he is. He, he wears a suit every single day and, I just thought that might be, you know, him uh, wanting to be well-dressed, and yeah. he, he accomplishes that, but there's a deeper meaning behind that. Yeah, I've known Larry for quite a few years now, and I always comment about how sharp he's dressed, and he is, and it made me think of, you know, when I'd see him, I, I was complimenting him. I'm like, oh, you know, look at, at that suit, and he and I actually have a similar suit. I'm like, you wear it better than me. And then it, it's one of those things when we talk about these conversations where they can be hard or uh, they might get awkward. I, during that, when he said that, I'm like, oh, my gosh, did he think I was, you know, saying something else or, or going down the road? Because I was just commenting he looked good. Yeah. And then when you find out the reason why he is dressed the, the way that he is, uh, folks, this is why we want to bring this series out and, and amplify these voices so you can hear it. And some of these things you're going to hear are going to be tough um, or – it's going to be something where you might not have recognized it, and hopefully you do. But um, to talk to Larry, Michael, you're absolutely right. We could have talked to him for much longer than what we did. Yeah, I mean, the, just the fact that that has to be, you know, he has to be cognizant of what he's wearing. Um, the fact that that has to be a day-to-day -day consideration just underscores um, it, still how far 
we have to yeah. go to root out some of this systemic racism that um, is prevalent in our society. And the other part of this is in the job that he has, you understand when somebody goes to talk to him, there might be a different tone than if they were to talk to somebody who doesn't look like Larry. And again, hopefully uh, you listen to these conversations and we appreciate you taking the time uh, for doing this. And it's something that we will continue to do. We have more episodes coming up and we plan on doing uh, as many more as, as we get the opportunity to do so. Yeah. And if you're interested in learning more about Larry and his life, you can uh, check out his book, Buck 72. Um, available wherever you can find find books these days. Uh, it's uh, a tale of, of, of really where he came from and, and how he came to be in the position he is. Uh, highly recommend you check it out. And you talk about a self-made man. Uh, Larry Perkins has been the definition of that and where he is today. So we thank Larry for joining us, and we thank you for taking the time to listen. Uh, thank you, Michael Smith, as always, for being the co-host here on this podcast and uh, we hope that you will tune in for our next special edition of Canes cast amplifying black voices around the national hockey league and the Carolina hurricanes. When our next guest will be the hurricanes general counsel, Nigel Wheeler, you will truly enjoy this conversation about his path to get to where he wanted to be, which is being part of the national hockey league and the Carolina hurricanes organization. Thanks for listening. And we'll bring you another episode next week.